Hidden Gems, Episode 11, The Spiel on the Spiel. Welcome to Hidden Gems, a board game podcast where we review unusual, forgotten, and underappreciated board games. We're your hosts. My name is Chris. I'm Jason. And I'm Cameron. Thanks for listening to our show. Yeah, welcome back, everybody. Welcome back, folks. Speaking of being back... <laughs> Chris, I know that you're recently back from being out of the state. Oh, yes. You didn't miss any episodes this time like Cameron. But tell us a little bit about your trip. So we were very fortunate, my wife and I and our family, to be able to travel. We went up to Boston and Maine for about eight days, and it was fantastic. As everybody knows, the country and the world has been going through a challenging time with COVID and not being able to travel and go about. And I have to say that it was just really nice now that people are getting vaccinated, things are more safe, just to be able to get out and go somewhere. And it was just a glorious trip. We spent the majority of our time in Maine. I'm not going to lay out every single detail of our trip, but I thought I would give a couple of highlights of the things that I really enjoyed. So when we were in Maine, you know how I love hidden gems. (laughs) (laughs) So I think we could consider this a hidden gem destination, if you will. We spent an entire day on an island called Monhegan Island, which is off the coast of Maine. And I'm sure if you're not from Maine or from the New England area, you've maybe never even heard of this island before. I've never heard of it. Yeah, so I learned about it in our researching of the trip, which I love to do, and it sounded really interesting, so we decided to go for a day. It's a tiny island. It's about 10 miles long in the widest dimension, and it's a little tiny world in and of itself. It reminded me a lot of New Asgard. Do you guys know what I mean when I say that? Is that a superhero thing? Nope. Yeah, yeah. You don't know, do you? You guys? No. no idea. You guys are a bunch of Marvel haters. You hate the MCU and all the Marvel movies, but for all the nerds out there, they know what I'm talking about. So there's a place in Endgame called New Asgard, where Asgard basically sets up on Earth, and it reminded me of that a lot. It's just this tiny village, a few houses, fishermen, like five cars in the entire island. People were just walking around in the road. Very awesome place. Loved it. And then once you get outside of the town, quote unquote, it's just trails interconnected through the island. Really tight. It almost feels like a tunnel. It felt magical. And then once you get on the opposite side of the island towards the Atlantic, it's water crashing on rocks. Wow. Really rugged terrain. Awesome. Loved it. Monhegan Island. If you ever take a vacation to Maine, you should definitely consider it. You have to take a ferry to get there about an hour, but it's worth it. That's awesome. Funny you mention it. <laughs> yes. So Chris and Tally actually stole our vacation from this one. <laughs> that is not true. <laughs> We've been planning a trip to Maine for a while. It's part of our goal of reaching all the national parks. And Acadia and Maine is our next trip. We actually leave in two weeks. They're getting vacation so. ideas from our trip. Just oh, to point that oh out. yeah. Sure, sure. He says that we stole this idea, but they're asking us for advice on where to go, you know. But we had a great time. And then when we were in Boston, we caught a game at Fenway. So great just to be in a crowd, you know, with the vendors going around, throwing around the Cracker Jacks and cotton candy. Awesome time. And then one more thing I'll mention, we spent some time in the north end of Boston, and we have a guild member who's from Boston who loves our podcast. He's a big supporter. I interact with him a lot on Instagram. His name is Scott. I believe his username is Who's Your Daddy. (laughs) He's also in the guild. But I knew he was from Boston, so I sent him a picture of the North End, and I was like, hey, do you know where I am? And he knew exactly where I was. This is one of the awesome things I love about our guild. 
he was just giving me all these recommendations of oh, where to fun. go. He was like, you know, you're eating here right around the corner. There's this local bakery called Bova's that you should check out because we were going to go to more of like a touristy yeah, one. Yeah, yeah. Went to Bova's. Awesome. Filled with all these delicious pastries. Dude. It was great. Yeah, he was like a tour guide for me, yeah, basically. Yeah, yeah. Guild member yeah. tour guide. Through Instagram. <laughs> we were just messaging each other back and forth. So thanks for the help, Scott. You helped us have an awesome time in Boston. But I will say somewhat ashamedly, so when you go to Boston, you have to have the cannolis. Yep. And he said, don't go to Mike's. It's the tourist trap. Go to Bova's. Get the cannoli at Bova's. So we got cannolis at three different places. <laughs> yeah. Bova's, Mike's, and then Modern, which is also another big uh-huh. pastry place in Boston. And I loved Bova's, but I liked Mike's cannolis better. Ooh. I'm sorry, wow. Scott. <laughs> I know. He's going to be sick to hear me say that, but I, I did like Mike's a little bit better, to be quite honest. All in all, awesome trip. We had a really great time. Sweet. Good, good. Looking forward to it myself. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I've got recommendations. I'm sure you do. (laughs) Well, since we're on the theme of traveling, I had a trip that I've been planning for a really long time. So back in, I believe, 2018, I started looking into and figuring out how to play the Irish bagpipes, which are also known as the Illin pipes or the elbow pipes. So I play the bagpipes, but not the kilt kind. <laughs> if you're wondering, these are typically played in bars, sitting down in Ireland in Irish traditional music settings. I got exposed to them while I was traveling in 2016. I spent some time in Ireland and just fell in love with it and was like, holy cow, that is the coolest instrument in the whole world and it looks literally impossible to play. And and everyone that I talked to was like, yeah, it's the hardest instrument on the face of the earth to play. So naturally, I got some. I figured that out, which was a puzzle (laughs) in itself to just get a little practice set of low-end pipes and just was like, well, I'm going to figure out how to play it. So I cobbled together a set that'll tide me over. But I also, in that time, placed an order with a pipe maker in Northern Ireland. To, pipes. To, yeah, to make <laughs> a full set of, of bagpipes for me. The thing is, it takes three years to make them. There's over 600 individual parts that have mm-hmm. to be hand manufactured. So I've been waiting for, at this point two and a half years while my pipe maker, Aaron O'Hagan, has been making these pipes. And I finally booked our tickets to go pick them up. I have to go pick them up in person because they're such a precious thing that he will not ship them. Wow. Which I was not disappointed to learn that he would not ship them to me because it was like, <laughs> oh, you mean I have to go on a vacation to Ireland? Darn, Darn yeah. you know? <laughs> so, and of course, a lot has happened since I got into playing this instrument all those years ago. I've gotten married. I've moved twice. And by the time I go to get them, which will be in January, I will also have a child. So we're going to get to figure out how to travel internationally post-COVID times with, at that point, five-month-old, I guess. And, so which uh, do you carry in your lap on the way back on the plane? <laughs> Baby bagpipes. Uh, Baby thankfully, bagpipes. Casey will be traveling with me, so I will be holding the bagpipes. <laughs> but yeah, so looking forward to that. You've gotten really good, by the way. Thank you. Thank you and so much. And I'm not just telling you that because you're <laughs> one of my best friends. But seriously, for it being the most difficult instrument in the world i guess <laughs> you're really good literally before we started recording cameron showed us a video of him playing in front of the place that he went on vacation where you were playing the concerning hobbit song from lord of the rings and it sounds just like it i mean Thanks. it's great really well done <laughs> of all the Elon pipe players i know personally you're the best <laughs> <laughs> oh thanks a lot jason it means a lot <laughs> all right jason beat that <laughs> Yeah, not not gonna not what gonna have be you able been to beat doing, that. Working on wheelbarrows. 
Uh, I did finish my wheelbarrow, <laughs> nice. but we won't revisit that. Speaking of weird hobbies. Yeah, no, not a whole lot from me. I went fishing. I finally caught a fish. I don't know if I've mentioned this before, but I've Wait, you've recent... never caught a fish <laughs> a before? A single fish? <laughs> <laughs> well, I didn't grow up fishing. It wasn't a thing that we did. I was never taught how to do it. We would go a couple times in college every once in a while. I never knew what I was doing. Never caught anything. A good friend, a mutual friend of ours, Daniel, has been slowly working me into the hobby, at least helping me understand what I'm doing. But I've gone out with him five times now and have caught nothing. <laughs> <laughs> so I keep giving him a hard time that he's a bad tutor. We finally took a trip out east this weekend to Roanoke Rapids to go striper fishing. So if you've never been striper fishing, striper or rockfish is a specific type of bass. And we caught some. We didn't catch nearly as many as I was promised, but <laughs> but I finally but I finally caught a fish and that felt good. And That's I mean, awesome. they're, they're big. They put up a good yeah, fight. Um, I, I would love to go do that. We live next to falls and occasionally we'll go and catch bass or catfish or whatever, but I would love to, to do some striped bass fishing. Yeah. The stripers, they put up a good fight. It's a good time. Yeah. That's about it for me lately. Awesome. Very cool. Well, as usual, we always feature a cocktail in each of our episodes. What are we drinking today, Chris? Yeah, as you folks know, today we're talking about the Spiel des Jahres, and obviously that's German Board Game of the Year Award, so I thought we would do another German-feeling cocktail, and if you remember when we did the Reiner Knizia episode, I did one with Jägermeister. Hmm. Not Jägermeister this time, I'm going to keep it a little more classy, so I decided to go with beer and a cocktail, <laughs> of which there are a few. Hmm. And one that I particularly like that I discovered not long ago. This cocktail is called the New Fangled. And that is a variation or a playoff of the Old Fashioned. Okay. So you got the Old Fashioned. This is the New Fangled. Okay. The New Fangled is basically an Old Fashioned with beer. Okay. Okay. So what you do to make this particular cocktail is you muddle cherries and oranges in the bottom of your mixer add a little bit of simple syrup add your bourbon two ounces of bourbon for this particular recipe a little bit of angostura bitters and then you shake it strain it because you're muddling okay right and then once you've strained you top it with uh beer two ounces of beer approximately preferably a white ale but any kind of light beer basically and that's a newfangled and i have to say i like this one a lot i drink this quite often actually yeah, it's quite good. I yeah. like that it's got this like hazy appearance. I guess it's from the muddling, the muddling. straining process. Okay. Yep. Yep. It's beautiful. So yeah, the newfangled. So as we mentioned, we're doing the Spiel des Jahres today. And you might be asking yourself, you're the Hidden Gems podcast. How are you talking about the Spiel and Hidden Gems at the same time? And that's a good question. And I actually debated whether we should do this episode, but I feel like there's a lot of good content here mm. because the Spiel goes way back. Right. Okay, back to 1979. I would bet that most modern day gamers probably have played less than 20% of the Spiel winners pre-2005. Right. Probably haven't even heard of a lot of them, to be quite honest. So I feel like that these particular games fall into our forgotten category of our criteria for the show. They're just older. I mean, it's a long time ago, right? Sure, yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, we're talking like 40 years. And unless you're seeking them out, you're unlikely to come across them at right. this point. Probably. Right, exactly. We're going to cover three games today, but I thought it'd be a little bit fun to go through a little bit of the history of the spiel, how it works, and then we're going to run the list and talk about the winners and give a little bit of a quick thoughts on the winners from previous years. Sweet, let's cool. do it. Yeah, so as I mentioned, the Spiel is the German language board game of the year. And I think that's important to note right away. If a game has not been printed and published in German and is not available in Germany, it cannot be considered for the award. Mm. 
So and, it doesn't have to originate in German language, but it has to at least been published, translated into German. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. And actually one of the winners, Rummy Cube, which I think won in 1981, is actually a game from like the 40s or the 50s, but it wasn't printed in German until 1981. Oh, wow. And that's why it was able to be won. So it doesn't necessarily have to be a game that came out that year. It just has to be a game that came out in a German language publication in that okay. year. Oh, okay. Interesting. Yeah. So as I mentioned, the Spiel, quote-unquote, is the family game of the year. But in more recent years, the Spiel has expanded a bit, and now there are three different awards. So there's the family game of the year, which dates back to 1979. But then there's also the Kinder Spiel, which is the children's game of the year, and that started in 2001. And then there's the Kinder Spiel, and that's the connoisseur's game of the year, or the heavier game, the complex game of the year, basically. Mm. The board game snobs game of the year. Okay. <laughs> and that was started in 2011. If you look back into the history of the spiel, it's interesting that prior to those, there were actually awards that they're referred to as special awards. Pre 2011, in the 2000s, they were awarding a lot of complex game of the year outside of the spiel award winner. And because games have become much more complex mm. over the last few years, which we've talked about on the show, for better or for worse, yep. they felt the need to create the Kinderspiel category because they kept coming up with these special awards for complex games. Okay. Games are just getting more and more complex, folks. That's just how it is. Mm-hmm. I don't love that, but it's <laughs> happening. Okay, So they've created a new category to address that. But in addition to complex game, they have had categories like best fantasy game, best dexterity game, most beautiful games, has won many times over the years as a special award. And then they even had best solitaire game back in 1980. One time they've awarded this. Can you think what that might be? 1980, solitaire game of the year. Spiel recipient. Solitaire. <laughs> Not solitaire. <laughs> the Rubik's Cube. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. yeah I, I'm surprised I was, that counts as a board game. Yeah, I, like, guess. I don't think of it as a game, but I guess yeah. it is. I found it interesting. The Rubik's Cube has won a Spiel de Yars award in oh. 1980 as Solitaire Game of the Year. Go figure. Interesting. So just real quickly on the history, the <laughs> idea is first attributed to the German journalist Jürgen Hertz, who came up with the idea of the award prior to the Nuremberg Toy Fair in an attempt to re-energize the board game hobby. Because up to this point, it was lagging a bit. And so they decided to create this game of the year to create excitement around it. Now it turns out to be the most important board game award you can receive. Then it was Like internationally, right? Internationally. Yeah, cool. for sure. Getting nominated for a spiel is a big deal. So there's a recommended list, which is the longest list. It's usually around 8 to 10 games long that were considered but didn't win. And then there's the nominee list, which is usually between 3 and 5 games. And then you have a winner. If you just get recommended to win the spiel, you can expect your sales to increase from anywhere from five to 3,000 is what a typical print run is, up to around 10,000 in sales, just for getting nominated, okay? Wow. If you win, they say that you can average anywhere on the range from 300 to 500,000 copies in sales for winning the spiel is yours. Wow. And in some cases in the millions, like Catan and Ticket to Ride, for right. example. Okay. And then finally, what determines the winner, what the jurors say, is that it has to be a family-friendly game with simple rules. A direct quote from their website says that it is a game that's best suited to promote the cultural asset of board games in society. 
So basically a board game ambassador, something that is welcoming Mm. to the hobby. And then in addition, they also place a lot of emphasis on originality, almost to a fault. And a lot of people, this is one of the biggest problems they have with the spiel is they do feel like a lot of winners don't win necessarily because they're the best game of those nominated, but because they're the most unique or the most original. Okay. Okay. So that's just some general information on the spiel and how it works. So like I said, I thought it would be a fun exercise for us to go through a list of the past winners. Going to get a little bit of a Hidden Gems mini review. We're going to be talking about some more popular games here. We're just going to rapid fire run through them. If we played them, give our thoughts on them, how we feel about them, and maybe even give them a, a rating. Okay. Cool. This will be interesting. Yeah. Just gut reactions, right? Gut here. reactions. <laughs> That's right. Rapid fire from the hip. All right. 2020, the most recent winner is a game called Pictures. I've not played this one. No. Never played it. Either. Okay. 2019, just one. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. That's the one where you're writing the words. The co-op game. So you're writing the words on the placard, but you can't match people at the table or those clues get canceled out, basically. Super simple game, Mm -hmm. but I've enjoyed it every time i played it. I mean, it's a good large group game. Agreed. Yeah. Yeah. I have no excuse for why I haven't bought this game yet. Yeah. It's fantastic. It it, it is a great game. I don't love co-op games, but this is one I like because there's no quarterbacking in this one, and it's just engaging. People like it. For me, this game is a five. I like this game. Absolutely, five. Yeah, I'd give it a five. Okay. 2018, Azul. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. I've played this one. It's been a while, and I'm struggling to remember it, but I remember enjoying it. I don't think it wowed me to the point of being like, this is the best game I've ever played. It had a nice little puzzle to it, mm-hmm. but I, I mean, I would give it a four maybe, but I would have to play it again to be really sure about that. It might fall on that 3-4 line for me. Yeah. I need to recap what, what the... Yeah, so just quickly, you're drafting little bake-like tiles that you're then putting in rows. They look like mosaic almost. You're drafting them, adding them to lines to fill in a grid, basically. I'm with Jason on this one. This one is probably a 4 for me, maybe a 3. It kind of falls on the line. I don't think it's bad. It's it's good. I, for the life of me, cannot figure out why this game is so popular. Hmm. Though. I mean, it is hot. It's 53 on BGG right now. Wow. Yeah. People love this game. Again, I don't think it's bad, but I don't quite understand what the rage is on Azul. For family-friendly, it seems a little opaque. Yeah. And then for like the heavier gamer, there's definitely strategy there, but it, it seems like it's limited. Yeah. So, I don't Agreed. know. I can't really give a rating on that one just because I know I played it before, but I think it must have been a been one-off, a and I just don't remember. <laughs> yeah. 2017. King Domino. I own this one. Yes, you do. But it's fallen flat for me mm-hmm. after a couple of plays. I bought it because I knew my kids would probably enjoy it, and they did for a little while. But it's not one that I'm like, oh, I need to play King Domino. I'm going right. to get that out when, when I think about a game to play with my kids. It seems a little limited in, in what you can do with it. It's it's very straightforward. It's super bare There's bones. Super yeah. bare bones. And I can see why that streamlinedness appeals to people, but just fell a little flat after a couple of plays. Great. Uh, three. Yeah, three for me too. For the same reason Jason said, there's just not enough interesting decisions to keep me engaged. I actually prefer Queen Domino slightly more. I would give Queen Domino a four, which is kind of a more complex version of King Domino, but neither of them do a lot for me. My favorite is Jack Domino. <laughs> Bing bomb. Okay. So you've oh. never played King Domino? Nope, never played oh, okay. either of them. All right. 2016, Codenames. 
Good game. Can be a little slow for the person who's not the clue giver. My biggest issue with this game. But I will say there are multiple like online versions of this game now. I've played it with work folks on our Friday take a break for an hour time, and they love it. Three. Three for me, too. I don't have any other comments. Yeah, I, I don't care for this game for the reason Jason said. I like party games to be faster moving and more engaging, and it's quiet, and the clue giver usually takes forever because they're so afraid of giving a bad clue. Yeah, yeah. I don't like this game too I'll much. I'll play it like if people are real into it, but I'm not going to own it, and I'm not going to advertise it. I agree. <laughs> 2015 Cold Express. Chaos. <laughs> Total chaos. Never heard of it. Yeah, I don't care for games like this. Walk the Plank as well. I've gotten rid of both of them. Don't like it. See, I can tolerate Walk the Plank for what it is because it's so short. It's small. And it's just right. crazy. Like, you you just expect wildness to be happening. It's Cold random. Express, like, is trying to be a more serious, like, longer length game. And I'm like, you just can't take that amount of randomness for that amount of time. Agreed. Random guessing programming. <laughs> Blah. No thanks. 2014, Camel Up. Never played it. Never played, never played it. Never played it either, interestingly. 2013, Hanabi. Yeah. Heck yeah. This I is mean, a six for yeah, me. Yeah, six. I love... Oh, is this going to be your first six? Yeah, I think it has to be. I wasn't expecting. Count. I wasn't expecting that, but yeah, I mean, like because it falls into the pretty popular category, and it's obviously a, an award recipient, but obviously six. My reservation about the six is about the podcast game. I have a lot of six games, right? Plus, it's got a special place in your heart. It does. It does. Yeah. It was the pathway to me falling in love with my bride. What one Italian eyes favorite games? We so good. we connect when we play this game. It's awesome for sure. I've only played it once. Remember enjoying it, but it was a while ago, so can't really give it a solid rating, I don't think. Okay. 2012, Kingdom Builder. Oh, yeah. Heck yeah. It's a great one. It's a great game. At least a five. Six for me. I love this game. I think I would probably stick with a five, but I played a lot. The app for the game is actually pretty good. It's an excellent app. So if you can't get your hands on the hard copy game, like the app is pretty cheap and like very replayable. Yeah. So much variability. Yes. Agreed. Yeah. And the objectives and how the board is set up, what special abilities are totally. out on the board. This game gets a lot of crap for just the single card draw. Mm. But I feel like that that's just because people don't understand how to play this game yes. well. You know yes. what I mean? You it's all be, about yeah. adjacency and not getting next to too many things yep. or you will screw yourself. Yep. But I think there's a lot of strategy in this game. Totally. All right. 2011, Quirkle. Never played it. Never played it. Never played it. 2010, Dixit. Played it once. It's more of like a group type game. Mm-hmm. It was eh, three for me. Yeah, the whole apples to apples style game, whatever form it takes, it's not my favorite. Probably a three. I get that. I get this game a five. I like it a lot. It's probably my favorite party game. It's beautiful. I will give it that. But in terms of a game that I want to play, yeah, it would be lower. For yeah, me. I don't like party games as a general rule. This is probably my favorite. This one and maybe just one. It's close between them. Okay. I would sure. like to play it again. I like it. All right, Cameron. 2009, Dominion. 2009 was Dominion? Yeah. Like the original edition? Yes. First edition? Yes. Holy cow. Yeah, I mean six all the way. Yeah, me too. I, I own, I think, nine expansions. Yeah. I'm going to deviate from the pack here. Dominion's like a three for me. Wow. Oh my gosh. I'm, I'm not a fan of Dominion. And that's not because I don't like deck builders. I've played plenty of deck builders that I enjoy. For Dominion some... is like the deck builder. <laughs> yeah, and maybe it's... Maybe it's you have to get into all the expansions and things. I've only ever played the base game, and it just really fell flat for me. There is definitely strategy to this game. I understand why people like it. It never really caught on with me for some reason. Fair enough. I love deck builders. A lot of people say, what would be your desert island game? 
this would be it for me. It's not my favorite game, but because of the permutations of how the game plays differently every time based on what cards you use, it's infinitely replayable. Yes. They cross mechanics across the expansions, and when you can start synergizing with cards that are not part of the expansion that you're playing with, it's really cool. Agreed. My wife is amazing at Dominion. Yes, she is. (laughs) (laughs) 2008, Keltus. Never played it. Kenitsu. Maybe not Lost Cities, the board game. I know you have it. I've seen it on your shelf, but I've never played it. I love this game. It's five for me. It's awesome. I like this game a lot. Interested in playing it. Yeah, we'll play it. 2007, Zularetto. Nope. Also never played it. Coloretto? Yeah. Played Coloretto. It's based off Coloretto. We actually played Coloretto on my vacation. Yeah, Coloretto's a four for me. I like it. It's It's good. good. It's a good one, yeah. 2006, Turning Taxis. Nope. I like this game. I do too. I, I would give this game at least a four. I've played it a couple times online and a few times in person. It's a solid little puzzle to figure out. Agreed. I like this game as well about the German postal system. As boring as that sounds. It's actually a good game. I like it. It'd be a four for me as well. It's a fun puzzle. I like it. 2005's Niagara. Reviewing that today. 2004, Ticket to Ride. Wow. Four. Four. We yeah. talked about Ticket to Ride before. Yeah, four. Base Ticket to Ride. Sure. Four. It's it's a good, good. on-ramp. Yeah. 2003, Alhambra. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Heck yeah. Six for me. I love this freaking yeah, game. Yeah, I was going to say probably yeah. five or six. I'm, I'm, I'm off the cuff here, but I do own Alhambra. I bought an old copy of yours. Yeah. My wife's favorite game, apparently. Yeah, that's right. From last episode. It's so good. I would give Alhambra a four. It's not Hall of Fame game for me, but I enjoyed it when I played it for what it is. Yeah. The puzzle of the majorities of the building types with the walls, with figuring out the currency. Simple, but fun. Love yeah. it. Yeah. Plus great expansions. It's a good one. 2002, Via Paletti. Never, Never played it. it. Never played it either. It's a dexterity game. 2001, Carcassonne. I'm going to get some hate for this too. but and, and to be fair, I've only played this game a handful of times, but don't love this one either. Probably a three for me. Okay. I'm not sure that I've played it. I, I've seen it, but I don't think I've played it. I've played it. It's been a long time. I'd probably give it a four. I would be interested to play it with expansions, see if I might like it more. I remembered liking it okay. It was good. Mm. But it didn't blow my socks off or anything. All right, here we go with shame time. Unless Jason can bail us out here. This, our guild members are going to just throw up when they hear this, I think. 2000 Torres. I have played this. Oh, good, because I haven't. All right. Not in person. I've played it online Doesn't on, on Yukata, I think. It's a tricky game. I, I've enjoyed my plays of it. I would be interested to play it with live humans, you know, in, yeah, in yeah. person. Um, I really want to play this one a lot. Kramer and Keesling. Yeah, it's it's solid. It's a solid puzzle for sure. Nineteen ninety nine, Takal. Haven't played it. Never played it. I know it's do you, terrible. Do you own it? No, I need to. Why do the, I feel like I've seen it on a shelf? Maybe in a game store. Maybe, I don't have yeah, it. Yeah. It's action selection. It's got some it's similarities. T i k a l. T i k a l. Okay. It's got some similarities to Cavum, and that action selection okay. mechanism, which we obviously love. Or 1998, Elfenland. Nope. Own I've played, it. I've played this played one. It. Oh, okay. Wait, well, there's multiple versions of this game. There's like Elfenland and Elfen Gold and, and Elfen, Elfen everything. It's expansions, yeah. <laughs> so I'm not sure exactly which one I've played. It might have been Elfen Roads. It, right. Is the one that I've played. Mm-hmm. Alan Moon, Ticket to Ride similarities, apparently. I want to play this one. 1997, Mississippi Queen. 
Nope. No. Me either. All right, Jason. 1996 El Grande. <laughs> yeah, I think I've mentioned this before. This is a six for me. I love this game. <laughs> so many brutal decisions. <laughs> yeah. It can be so mean. This game is played in tournaments all over the place still. It's a fantastic. Yeah. I, I love this game. Six for me. Yeah, I agree. Strong five for me. Tough decisions. I like this one a lot, too. Yeah, I, I bind up when I play El Grande. But to me, it's like the area control yeah. game, right? If I think of area control, I think of El Grande. But probably probably a four. Okay. I probably hesitate for a five because I'm not good enough at it. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't played it in a while. It might be a six for me. I know everybody's like, Chris gives six to everything. But, I mean, this would be in my top 50 to 100 somewhere. I, I like this one a lot. 1995 Catan. This is probably honestly fallen on the scale for me just because I feel like it's prone to a couple of ailments, I guess. The randomness of the board where the tiles get placed out, where the numbers get placed out. So yeah. probably I'm down to like a four on it. Okay. I, Still I don't a think, four. Yeah, because like in itself, it's a good game. Yeah, three to four for me. We've just found so many games that yeah. I enjoy better that don't deal with the randomness issues. But because it's loved by so many people and it's gotten so many people into the hobby, you have to respect it. I, yeah, I agree. So, I, it's, so, a good, it's a good reason. Yeah, I'm I probably on. haven't played Catan in eight years at least. <laughs> Based on my recollection of it, I remember it as being a four. However, if I were to play it today, I wonder if I might give it a three. It's been a while. I don't know. Like I think like Jason said, it's just... The hobby's come a long way, and it's probably not aged as well. Yeah. In my opinion. 1994 Manhattan. Never played it. Never played I it. I have. It's good. Give it a five. Wow. Okay. Vicious area control. Super simple rules. It's really good. We will play it sometime. Nice. Nice. I like this one. 1993 Perudo, also known as Liar's Dice. Never even heard nope. of this one. Never heard of Liar's Dice? No. Well, I've heard of Liar's Dice, but okay. not Perudo. It's just a variation on it. Played it in the Pirates of the Caribbean movie. Oh, interesting. Mm-hmm. It's cool. Four. Nice. Bluffing game. Um Reifenbreite. Nope. Not played it. Bicycle racing game. 19... I haven't either. I've not played it. 1991, Wacky Wacky West. I know you own it. I, I see it on it. your shelf all the time, but I've never played it. <laughs> I've not played it either. Klaus Toiber. Okay. Catan. 1990, Hoity Toity. We're reviewing that today. 1989, Cafe International. Probably known as the most racist game in the history of board games. <laughs> okay. Wow. Yeah. I've not played it, but basically you're seating people at tables based on their nationality. Oh, no. And Uh-oh. they may or may not sit next to different nationalities and certain genders and whatnot. This I've not played it, but it's weird. What year was that? 1945? Nine, nine, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. 1989. This game needs to be rethemed. 1988, Barbarossa. Nope. Nope, me either. It's basically apples to apples with clay. Sculpting. Oh. Off Oxa. 1987. Heard about this game, but never played it. It's Wolfgang Kramer. I've not played it either. It's very hard to find. Hmm. 1986, Heimlich & Co. We're reviewing it today. 1985, Sherlock Holmes Consulting Detective. Interesting. I don't think back I knew to that. Back detective games, eh? The original co-op <clears throat> game, I guess. Wow. Is the more recent version of this based off of this yes. game? Yes. Okay, because I've heard of that. Yeah. Didn't know it was this old. I'm intrigued to try it. I've never played it. 1984, Damp Frost. I've heard of this game, and it intrigues me. It, it does me, too. Actually, of all the ones I researched, I want to play this one the most. I almost got a copy of it in my big shipment of games that I got from Europe, but it had already been sold, and so I didn't get a copy of it. Would be interested to play me it. Me, too. It's a train game. 
Okay. Crayon Rails. Yeah, I'm intrigued by it. 1983, Scotland Yard. Oh. I own this one. I own the yeah. original version of this one. I think it's been surpassed by things like... Letters from Whitechapel. Letters from Whitechapel yeah. and others that do that same mechanic better. Yeah. But, I mean, at the time, it was probably the original of that one against many hunting, hunting you down in in the big city type thing. I, I enjoyed it before I knew about Letters to Whitechapel, but that's kind of surpassed it for me now. Sure. Yeah. Would you give it a number? Now, probably a three. Mm. Two, three. Yeah. I remember, like, I, I may have only played it one time, but I remember being absolutely fascinated watching people playing it the first time because I had never seen a game like that. Yeah. I, I wasn't even playing. I was just watching other people. I was, like, just fascinated. For people that never played them before, it's pretty mind-blowing, I yeah. think, for most people. I've not played Scotland Yard, but I like Letters from Whitechapel a lot. Almost to the end, 1982, the year of my birth, Enchanted Forest. Never played Never it. Me either. It. Somebody in our guild actually recommended this game. Okay. Interesting. Go figure. 1981, Focus. Never heard of it. Nope. Sid Saxon. So interestingly, Sid Saxon was nominated in 1979 for a choir, which did not win, but Focus won. It's an abstract game. Okay. 1980, Rummy Cube. Surely y'all have played this. Mm. Mass Market. Don't think so. No? Yeah. Sadly. Rummy with tiles, yeah. basically? don't think so it's meh okay <laughs> you're not missing much i'd give it a three i've heard of the name of it but i've never played it yeah you could find it in walmart or target okay. right now probably okay yeah and then last but not least 1979 hair and tortoise re-implemented so this, so this is around the world around in 80 days in 80 days yeah by yellow okay i enjoyed this game at least the around the world in 80 days version that it's i've pretty played. much the same so if it doesn't deviate too far from the original i, I enjoyed it there's some randomness, but I, I enjoyed this one. I'd give it a four. I don't think I've played it. I don't think you have it's either. It's familiar sounding, but... Yeah, I don't think you have either, but it's fun. I like it. It's a four for me, too. It's got an interesting movement mechanic of the farther you move ahead, the more it costs, basically. So you're, like, moving backward to get money to move forward. It's weird, but I enjoy it. I'd give it a four. Sweet. That's all of them. Nice. Rapid fire reviews. <laughs> That's more games than we reviewed in the life of this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> All right, folks, well, that's it for our primer on the Spiel des Jahres, so we'll go ahead and get into the games. Undercover agents match wits in a race for the top-secret file. A darkened street, mysterious cloak figures. Who are these agents, and what are their plans? In this spy game, the agents are after a file containing the plans for the construction of a top secret installation. <laughs> Is that it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's one of my favorite ones. That one was good. <laughs> the Michael Caine accent. I feel like there's a guy in uh, Skyrim that sounds like that. He's one of the, <laughs> yeah, one of the members it. of the Thieves Guild. <laughs> and he gives you missions. Yeah. Excellent. That was well done. <laughs> All right. Heimlich & Co., also known as Top Secret Spies, year of publication 1984, published by Ravensburger, Amigo, and Rio Grande Games. At the time of this recording, its BGG ranking is 1,959. Designer, Wolfgang Kramer, as we have mentioned. Excellent designer. I picked this game up in a flea market convention sale. Nice. <laughs> For $5, I believe. Okay. At our local convention, Whose Turn Is It Anyway? Triangle area of North Carolina. 
they do a flea market sale every Saturday morning for a couple hours. And it's just a madhouse because wow. you can get really good deals. And this one was on sale for like five bucks. And it's a Spiel winner, and it was Wolfgang Kramer. I was like, I'm buying it. So that's how I picked it up. Nice. Yeah. Cool. Brief rule summary. This will be quick. There aren't too many rules here. It's a pretty simple game. Before I get into the details of the rules, I think it is good to go through the setup because that will help you understand how the game plays. The way the board is laid out, there is a score track that is situated around the board. It's got 42 spaces on it. And then just interior to that are 12 different houses that are also arranged in a ring. The houses are numbered 1 to 10. And then after the 10th house, there's a ruinous area called the ruins and then immediately after that is the church like i said this is a ring okay so they're connected in a circle before the game begins everybody will get a card dealt to them face down that has a detective on it of a certain color this is going to be your secret identity for the game so this is a social deduction game you will know what color you are but you will not know everybody else's color once you identify your color every color that's in play will be placed on the church plus two additional colors, which will be dud players, most likely, depending on player account. So as I mentioned, all the pawns are on the church. One of them will be you. You don't know anybody else's identity, nor do you know the identity of the dud players. So now having that in mind, the way the game plays is very simple. On your turn, you're going to take a six-sided die, and you're going to roll it. And that will determine how far you can remove detectives. So not necessarily just your detectives, but any detectives. So let's say that I roll a four. I have the option. I can move four detectives, one space. I can move a single detective, four spaces, or I can move two detectives, two spaces. Any combination works. And that's your turn. Very simple. So why are you moving your detectives along this path? So the path you're moving along is along these 12 houses. On one of these houses is a safe. If anybody moves a detective onto the house with the safe, it will trigger a scoring. Once the scoring is triggered, whatever spaces the different detectives are on, the value of those houses, that's how many spaces that marker will move forward on the score track. So let's say the orange detective is on house number nine. When the scoring is triggered, that detective's score marker will move forward nine spaces. The way the game ends is once a player gets their scoring marker to make it all the way around the board to space 42, that player has won the game. So obviously, you want your detective to advance forward, but if people figure out who you are, they're going to hinder you. So for example, there's a space on the board, the ruins that I mentioned. If you're standing on the ruins when a scoring is triggered, you move backward three spaces. So if you're too obvious in what you're trying to do moving a pawn around the board, everybody else at the table is going to put you on low-valued houses or on the ruins. So you have to be sneaky about it. That's why it's a social deduction game. In addition, I'll mention one more thing. There's a variant rule, which in my opinion should always be the rule, where once the first pawn crosses the corner right before the final corner of the score track, everybody will write down on a piece of paper what agent they think each person is at the table, in addition to the duds. And then in addition to your final score, you'll get five bonus points for every person that you correctly identify, which will also add to your score, which makes it important for people not to figure out who you are. And that's it. It's a pretty simple game. You roll a die and you move. Mm -hmm. And you're trying to figure out who you think people are. And that's generally how you play Heimlich & Co. So as I mentioned, this is a social deduction game. And this was published in 1984. So quite a while ago, this might have been the first social deduction game or one of the first. And social deduction games are hot now. They're very popular in modern board games, games like The Resistance, Avalon, Secret Hitler. 
very popular now. So how do you feel like this game compares to social deduction games now? And do you feel like it still holds up or is it more obsolete? Yeah, my first reaction when I think about this in comparison to other social deduction games, especially those that I like, like Bang, Secret Hitler, Mm -hmm. it seems like the ultimate decisions that you have to make that give you real useful information are really limited. And this game gives you almost too many (laughs) things that you need to observe, right? Because a person can take their turn and you can make judgments based on how quickly, how decisively they move, how many different pieces they move, what order they move those pieces in. Mm -hmm. And you're sitting there going, okay, well, which one of these is Chris's? Is it the one that he moved first because that's his biggest priority? Is it the one that he moved farthest because he wants his dude to do the best? Or is that a red herring and he actually is moving his the least and last you don't necessarily know there's so many things that you have to observe whereas like in bang you're like who's being loud or who's right you know who's being aggressive and accusatory or something like that there's not really any speaking in this game required at all it's just a completely different take on social deduction yeah for me i don't think it's been any secret on this podcast so far well i don't know maybe we haven't talked about it a ton but social deduction is not my favorite genre of game It's interesting because this is definitely a social deduction game, but I didn't Mm -hmm. immediately think of it as such because there is that movement of pawns. Like normally social deduction is all vocal. It's all verbal, right? Right. And so I was looking for that strategy in the movement aspects of things. And it's there to a degree, but I I agree with Cameron in that there is so much going on. I mean, it's such a simple game. Don't get me wrong. But like in terms of trying to track what other people are thinking and what they're doing through the limited information that you're getting, it's really challenging. At least it was for me. Chris, you were like the savant at this game <laughs> so, somehow. So it, it makes me question my opinion and we'll get to my opinion later, I guess. But yeah, I struggled with figuring out how do you actually deduce anything in this game? Because you can definitely... For, for certainty, you mean. Right. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, that's the whole point, I guess, of social deduction is you don't know anything for sure. Sure. But based on the way you can play this game, you can play and just totally bluff the whole time and still manage to do decently well. You know, I could take my turn and never move my person. I and, think that's rare. Right. But I tried it a few times. I didn't win. So maybe yeah. that's maybe that's <laughs> the point. But I'm not necessarily disagreeing with you. And I think when I get more into my cons, I, I'll speak to that, too, because I, I think you do make a good point there. But I think there's valuable information to be gleaned in this game for sure. I did play this game one or two times. One time in particular, I was able to peg everybody and figure out everybody's did, pawn, yeah. which was really fun and very satisfying. And I think you do it off of stepwise accumulation of information a lot of things you've already mentioned cameron but in addition if a pawn is on the ruins who moved them off and why again that's just one piece of information they could be trying to throw you but if your guy's stuck on the ruins you've got to get him off there right you're the only person that's motivated to do exactly who's doing that when somebody triggers a scoring where are the pawns Mm -hmm. right why did he trigger that scoring it had to well most likely benefit him in some way right so looking at that How many times has somebody moved a certain guy? Who's moving who? You know, there's a lot of things to consider, but I think it's all valuable information where you can get a good idea of what's going on. And then one more thing I wanted to say, and this was probably my main point in this game, and you both kind of hinted at it, especially you, Cameron, was how different this game is from most social deduction games now. Yeah. So I think we've all probably had that experience where we've played Resistance or we've played Secret Hitler with a group of people And some people have obviously never played it before. And they're sitting there with their head in their hand. And they're clearly having a bad time. 
You know what I mean? Yeah. Because those games just devolve into shouting matches, <laughs> right? And some people love that. No, you're this person is people screaming at each other, yeah. right? Yeah. Some people just don't like that. Yeah. You know, and I've seen people just shut down in Secret Hitler because of what it turns into. Yeah. But I think some people might really enjoy social deduction if it didn't do that, and this game doesn't. Mm. It's social deduction without the yelling. Right? You know what I mean? Yeah. Right. Like, you can sit there and try to figure out, okay, I think Cameron's this person, I think Jason's this person, without somebody screaming at you. I think that's this game's greatest strength, hmm. is it serves a unique niche in the social deduction genre, at least compared to modern ones. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, well, I was going to go into cons, so I guess if you guys have other, uh, other <laughs> things. See. One of the small cons I had is if you're getting unlucky with the dice rolls and you're rolling like ones and twos, that just puts you in a bad spot. Yeah. Especially if you're feeling like you're in a position where you really need to move your guy. It's just hard to disguise yourself there if yes. you're getting unlucky with the dice. I think we played a game. Yeah. I watched Eric roll legit five ones in a row. Yeah, that's rough. And it was just like, dude, that just sucks. You're just yeah. stuck relying on other people to move your guy. What <laughs> if, and like you said, luck. if you get stuck on the ruin pile and you roll a one, it's super obvious that, you, that that's your <laughs> right. color, right? Right, yeah. I think that goes into one of my primary cons to this game. You are very much at the mercy of other people moving your pawn around the board. And that's kind of the point, right? But if you get placed into a poor situation, if you reveal yourself because you make a dumb move and then other people move you into a compromising situation, that's your own right, right? But I feel like because there is such limited information about who is doing what, especially towards the beginning of this game, people are just moving pawns around. Because yes, they don't want to be o- because they don't want to be obvious about moving their own, right? Mm-hmm. But that could unintentionally place someone at a real disadvantage simply because other people are moving their pawn around, and if they don't have the resources like the dice rolls to get themselves out of that situation, we saw I think in a couple of the games that we played, one player or two players just get hammered on that yeah. negative space, and it was a pawn that belonged to somebody, and they just didn't have the way to get out of that situation either without being super obvious about it or they just didn't get the dice rolls that they needed. I don't know. That soured me a little bit on it. Yeah, Um, I struggled with that a few times too. You're kind of making these arbitrary decisions and everyone's making these arbitrary decisions when you're like, oh, I'm going to pick a pawn to move to kind of fill out my turn a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I I agree with what you guys are saying. I I, I did find in one game that I played at this, I found myself in the very fortunate position that for whatever reason, people just decided that my color was going to be the one that they were going to try to hide in. If and that everyone makes knew sense. you weren't blue because it, colors had to be randomly <laughs> assigned right. in this game. That's right. Bill so, couldn't just target you. you that's know? right. <laughs> Bill can't attack me in this game. Thank goodness. But yeah, people were just moving me along and I was like, this is great. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just going to keep letting people do that you right know? but that's not oh, skill oh, look, either I'm right that's, the, that's the problem that's not skill either that's luck yeah. I, I, so. yeah, that's why i mentioned it in, in this economy right. Right. right i i think that can happen i don't think that that's necessarily the rule i'm just saying i think that that can happen and, and i will say in a little bit of a rebuttal to what y'all are saying about being on the ruins and such i did find that in some games i did feel like some people weren't moving off the ruins when they could have it's always, I guess, obvious if you move off the ruins, but I move people off the ruins that aren't me, right? Just because you move a guy off the ruins doesn't mean that that's who you are, right? Yeah. That's all of the part of hiding, right? Yeah. Like It's just if you're combined with terrible rolls. Right, and that's the thing. If nobody's helping you and you're rolling poorly, you can be in a tough spot, and that can happen. But again, in my opinion, that's more fringe 
it can happen, but I don't think that's necessarily the rule. I think people just have to not be worried about moving because in my plays of this game, I think people were so concerned about not being identified that they hurt themselves by not getting close to the finish line. And if you're not close to the finish line, it doesn't matter if you guess everybody. You're not winning. So you have to move your person at some point. All right. Y'all want to move on to final thoughts here? Sure. Yeah, let me think think how to... You didn't write yours down. (laughs) Not not word for word. (laughs) You know, could learn from the best. That's right. You are the best. (laughs) Learning this game, there was something that really appealed to me about it. And I think what it is, is the elegance of the design to this game. There's something very elegant about the simplicity of this game. And it just feels good, the mechanic Mm -hmm. to it. And I really enjoyed that aspect of the game. I think I struggled with the social deduction piece of it. And the chaoticness of the movement. And really trying to figure out, is there really even anything to deduce here? I think that was proven by the fact that Chris is somehow the savant of this game. <laughs> I never did well at this game, I don't think. I think I won the first time we played without the variant mm-hmm. and because nobody knew what they were doing. That's generally how things work. I get the first win of a game when no one knows what they're doing and then I'll never win again. But I enjoyed the elegance of the game and the mechanic to it. Mm-hmm. And I had fun playing it. In terms of long-term longevity for me, I struggled with the chaos I struggled with, is there really a strategy to this? Or are people getting lucky that other people are moving their pieces in an advantageous way? For me, I settled on a three for this. It, I don't know. I wanted to like it more, but settled on a three for me for those reasons. Okay. I think I'm in a similar boat. I really appreciated so many things about this game, particularly the simplicity and that there's an elegance, right? in that kind of simplicity that a game like this presents, right? There's very few game pieces. It's a very simple board. The rules are quite simple. And there is like this like allure to trying to keep your identity secret and angle for an advantageous position. But the chaotic elements really got to me, I guess. So I, I didn't really love Heimlich and Co. And, and maybe it's just me. I never really did feel like a sense of control or strategy while I was playing this game. You know, it was either I couldn't get the roles to do what I needed to do or if I did, the opportunities to do what I needed to do to do without giving myself away were pretty slim. I frequently got selected by the unspoken group think that my color was a dud to just be like trashed or left behind as fodder to disguise their moves. I think it's an interesting concept, but for a social deduction game, it was also just way too much to keep track of for me to really feel like I was having fun. So I'm also going to give it a three. Okay. So I found as I've been in the hobby over the years, I've cooled a lot on social deduction games. There was a time where I was really into them. The idea of the resistance was just such a neat idea. And I was just really intrigued by figuring out who people are. Mm -hmm. Games like Secret Hitler, things like that. And I found that I've not been enjoying them as much lately. Again, much for the reasons of it devolving into shouting matches or people that I invite to game night. And I'm like, hey, let's play Resistance. And they look like they're having a miserable time. You know, I just, I don't know. I don't enjoy them as much. This game was a bit of a breath of fresh air for me. Mm -hmm. It really was. I, I enjoyed the social deduction element without the shouting. I like that about it. I totally get what you guys are saying about it. I don't think it's without flaws, but for me personally, I did feel like I was able to make some meaningful deductions Mm. about who people were based on their movements and what they were doing and how they were playing. And if people were playing in such a way that it was just impossible to figure out who they were, they weren't going to win anyways because that means they're not moving their person. Right. So that's fine. You don't want me to figure out who you are. You're never going to move your guy. You're going to lose anyways. Right. You know, that's just the 
conclusion I came to. So for me, it's a four. I think it's a good game. I'm going to keep it okay. uh, for those reasons. I think it serves a purpose mm. on my shelf. Yeah, I Great. can see that. Or could our listeners find Heimlich and Co. if they're interested? Yeah, so as old as it is, 1984, I was two. <laughs> <laughs> you weren't born yet. Nope. <laughs> it's readily available, okay. as most Spiel winners are, to be quite honest. That label just helps games stay in print. Mm. So there are a couple of online retailers where you can get this game. Noble Knight, as usual, comes through. You can get it with them. It's on Amazon, and there are 21 copies on BGG. So if you want to give this game a try, it's out there. And I would say if you like lighter family weight games, even with kids, this would be a good social deduction game for kids. I would play The Resistance with small children. <laughs> you know what I mean? But right. this one This would be good for kids. Yeah. yeah, for sure. For sure. So, yeah, check it out. It's Heimlich & Co. <laughs> Eccentricity is what makes the world go round. Well, your world, anyways. As a member of the pretentious antique club, you will feel inexplicably compelled to outshine your other snobby friends. What you and your wacko group lack in refinements and true sophistication, you certainly make up for in lack of scruples. You are oddly convinced that it is your destiny to become the anti-collector with the most valuable connection by using any means necessary. <laughs> Unfortunately, you aren't the only one without a sense of right or wrong. Your egotistical friends are not above bluffing, trickery, or even theft. Outwit your fellow snobs to become the most hoity-toity of them all. Klaus Teuber, the designer of the world-famous Settlers of Catan series of games, received the prestigious German Game of the Year award for this classic in 1990. This intriguing game, which has sold over one million copies in Germany, is enjoyed by people of all ages. <laughs> <laughs> Scruples. Scruples. Dude, you're on a roll today. <laughs> I had to channel my inner, oh, what's her name? The, the granny from, from, oh no. What is the name of the show? I'm drawing a complete blank. No idea what you're talking uh, about right mind. now. We'll just yeah. scratch all this. <laughs> Church lady? No, it's the Dowager Countess from Downton. Oh, Yes, gosh. yes. I had to channel That's my, why I didn't my, know. I don't watch inner, that crap. My inner Dowager from, from Downton Abbey. <laughs> I feel like the flavor text material has been lagging a bit lately, so I'm, That's I'm, true. I'm glad we're to coming see out we got of a some slump. good stuff. We are. We're coming out yeah. of a slump yeah. here. <laughs> Just hasn't been the same since the pirate impression. <laughs> <laughs> well, tell us how to play hoity-toity, Hoity-toity. All right. Also known by other names, such as by hook or crook, fair means or foul, or also known as Adel Verpflichtet. Which, interestingly, I looked this up. It translates from German, at least according to Google Translate, into French for noblesse oblige. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right either. Which means nobility obligates, which is a huh. like a phrase that was used amongst the English nobility when, I guess, at some point they spoke French in the English nobility. And it was used to denote that nobility extends beyond mere entitlement and requires people who hold such status to fulfill social responsibilities. 
which is an interesting twist huh. on the actual theme of this game. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> but obviously it's related to the nobility or whatever, but it's actually pointing to nobility means you have more social responsibility. Yeah. Huh. So. And interestingly, you'll often hear this game referred to by that title, whatever you just said, which I'm not going to try to pronounce. Right. The Adel... Adel Verpflichtet. At the World Board Game Championships, this is what they call it. They don't call it hoity-toity. Okay. Well, I apologize in advance for my did, butchering of German pronunciation. They had to come up with a simpler <laughs> game for us Americans. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> All right. So published in 1990 by Klaus Tuber as the designer, this predates Catan by yes. five years. And actually, interestingly, this has the BGG ID 120. So this is really early entry in the BGG database. Yeah. It also has the same typeface as the Settlers of Catan art. Oh, interesting. Did not notice that. I didn't either. Published by Aaliyah or Ravensburger and currently ranked on BGG 1,564. Not too bad. So I'm going to try to explain hoity-toity here. Chris always gives me the the super weird games to try to explain, so I'll do my best here. Jason was like, do you want me to do Niagara? And I was like, no, you can do (laughs) hoity-toity. So in hoity-toity, players are attempting to gain the most prestige or hoity-toitiness, I guess, by collecting valuable antiques, either legitimately or sometimes illegitimately. The winner is the player that manages to move their pawn along a track around the outside of the board through various castles and mansions and things to reach a banquet table at the end of the line. Throughout the game, players are going to be attempting to acquire antique cards to form exhibits, which will allow them to move their player pawn forward. And these antique cards are lettered from A through F, and you create an exhibit by creating a run of these cards. Uh, A run is at least three cards of linked letters. Duplicates are allowed. So you could have ABC, you could have ABBC, you could have ABBBC, or AABBCC. All of those are legitimate runs. The largest run is going to win. In each round, every player is going to secretly choose between two locations that they're going to visit. And they do this with two cards. One gets played face down on the table. Everyone will place their card face down. They'll get flipped over and revealed which of the two locations you plan to go to. These locations are the auction house or the castle. Any player that chose to go to the auction house is then going to choose between two additional actions that they want to perform in the auction house. And this is, again, decided secretly. Players will choose a card, place it face down on the table. Once everybody has done that, they're flipped over. The actions that you can choose are either cash or thief. Any player that has chosen cash has played a card to the table with a particular cash value on it. The player who played the highest cash value gets to choose one of two different antique cards that are available face up on the board. Yep. Any player that played thief, as long as they are the only player who played thief, and that's important, (laughs) you get to steal the money card of the player who played the highest money card. That card then goes into that player's hand that they can use on a future turn to acquire cards in the auction house. Mm -hmm. However, if multiple players play thief cards, they cancel each other out and no one gets anything. Get nothing. So that's the auction house. Now let's talk about the castle. So in the castle, there are three actions that are available to you. Again, this is decided secretly. Players choose one of those three cards. They place them face down on the table. They get flipped over. In this case, the available actions are either to exhibit to again, thief, or to play a detective. First of all, of the players who played exhibit, those players are all gonna choose from the antique cards that they have in their hand, place their cards out on the table simultaneously, whoever's played the larger set wins. 
the winner of this exhibit is going to get to move their pawn forward on the track a number of spaces determined by the position of the player who's furthest ahead on the track. Different spaces on the track have numbers on them. There's two numbers, a higher number and a lower number. The player who wins the exhibit moves the larger number. Mm-hmm. The player who plays the second largest exhibit, if there is one, moves forward the lower number. Any player that plays a thief is going to get to steal a card from every player who has exhibited. And this can be this can be a big deal. <laughs> yes, it can. So it's a great way to break up other players' sets that they've played. Yeah. If multiple people play okay. thieves. Each thief gets to steal from each person who exhibited. Which can really wreck you, yeah. Right. However, the catch to the thief in this particular location is that there's the detective. The catch of the thief, you might say. Uh, Yeah, (laughs) exactly. So any player who has played a detective, as long as there is at least one thief played, will get to move forward on the track a number of spaces equal to their current rank. So if you're in first place, you move forward one space. If you're in sixth place, you move forward six spaces. The other effect of the detective is that if there are thieves, all thieves end up in prison. They're arrested, they go to jail, after they've had the chance to steal. The prison is in the center of the board. As cards get added to it, there's the possibility that cards could get bumped out of the prison and come back into a player's hand. But that's essentially how this game works. It's a Mm -hmm. big game of rocks, paper, scissors, really. The game ends once a player has made it to the end of the track, to the banquet table. At which point there's one final exhibit for a very large value yeah. of points. And once that's resolved, whoever's the furthest along the track wins the game. Well done. Mm-hmm. I tried. It's a tough one. <laughs> All right. So this game is unusual for sure. Uh, very. It definitely has that rocks, paper, scissors type dynamic to it, which is pretty unique. My question for you guys would be, have you played anything similar to this? Or are there any games that you've played that this reminded you of? Yeah, I was thinking about this, and I was like, what is this like? Normally, we have these mechanic descriptor names, and I was like, what sort of game is this? And I, I didn't know until actually I was talking to Chris about it, and he's like, yeah, Rock, Paper, Scissors is a game mechanic. And and this game I definitely embodies that, but probably the nearest cousin that I would think of when I think of this game, or at least what it reminds me of, is that two-card decision, right? Am I going to go to the auction house or the castle? Reminded me a lot of Ink and Gold. Okay. And that whole, like, well, what's Chris going to do? Is he going to go back? Is he going to stay? Is he going to go to the auction house? Is he going to... Mm-hmm. That kind of thing. Yeah. This one is an interesting one. I had to think about this question, and I haven't really played many rock, paper, scissors types games before. This yeah. one was very unique for me personally, which is one of the reasons I was attracted to it, to play it initially. <laughs> found it very interesting. I definitely feel like I've played games before that have this... I know that you know that I know that you know the type of thing going on where I'm not going to do this because you think I'm going to do this, so maybe I should do it because you're thinking that I'm thinking. You know, it's got that feel mm-hmm. to it. So yeah. if you like that kind of thing where you're trying to fake out people or figure out what you think people are thinking, and that's the thing. This is a head game. Yep. You're trying to get in people's heads, right? Like, what is Cameron thinking right now? <laughs> if you can figure that out, you can do pretty well in this game, but the, it's difficult, at least for me. Mm. Yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's like it's not really bluffing because you're not necessarily putting something out where you're saying, well, this is something that you don't know. Yeah. <laughs> but it, it has that same feel to it. And then I'm trying yeah. to figure out, well, what does Cameron think I'm going to do? So I'm going to try to do the opposite. Right. But then if he thinks I'm going to do the opposite of what I said I was going to do or what I what he thinks I was going to do, then maybe I should do the thing that I was originally going to do. It's like really slow motion rock, paper, scissors. It is. Because you have like minutes in between your turn to think about what you're going to do. 
but sometimes you can change your plan right like i had turns of playing this game where i would make that initial decision like all right this time there's a new card that came up and i really kind of want to get that card off the stack so i'm going to choose auction hall but then i would choose auction hall. i would see who was coming out for auction hall yeah. and not castle and i'd be like hmm I bet they're going to drop cash. Yeah. I'm going to put the thief down, you know, and I would change what I was going to do based on you think, I think type of dynamic. Yeah. There's definitely information to be gained in this game. If you go to the castle and somebody goes to the castle and we're playing like a five or six player game, which we often play this in higher Mm -hmm. player accounts. And that person is in sixth place or fifth place. (laughs) Trying you to have detect. to have a strong suspicion that they're maybe going to play detective because they have a lot to gain there. Yeah. But what's or funny thief. about this game is they know yeah. that we know that. Right. 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 So now are they going to do it because we know that they can benefit? <laughs> so maybe we'll do something different. Maybe we'll play thief thinking, well, they won't do that. And then maybe they still do it. You know, again, it's all head games here. Yeah. Right. Yep. Yeah, I really enjoyed the variety of ways that this game gives you to move forward. Yeah. All three of the actions that you can take, well, really all five of the actions that you can take in both of the locations really benefit you if you do them well. Right. right? And there's not even only one way to move forward on the track. You can move forward because you're exhibiting, but you can also move forward because you're playing detective. You can use the thief in two different ways, either to steal cash, which gives you the longer term benefit of being able to buy more cards at the auction house. Or you can use the thief to just steal cards from other people, which has the added benefit of slowing them down because right. you might be breaking up their runs, right? So I really enjoyed that that puzzle of all these different routes of the strategy of how I can impact other players and impact my own ability to move forward and trying to figure out, okay, well, what's the best thing to do right now based on what I think other people are trying to do? Yeah. I enjoyed that. I was thinking about the thief and I know that a lot of times we talk about the take that stuff and anytime that you're doing something that's going to directly harm another player and sometimes we don't review those types of things favorably, right? We had another game recently, I think Freya's Folly with the thief card, right? And so I was thinking about that when I was prepping here and I feel like they executed the thief well in this game. The fact that there's kind of... Because it's not without risk. Yeah, If right, exactly. It's high risk, high reward, right? And Fire Uh, Follies are no risk. Exactly. Right. If you're wrong when you go to the auction hall and you use the thief, you lose your turn. Right, right? you get nothing. You don't get anything out of it. But if in the castle you're wrong, you might lose your turn. You might lose your thief. Right. It adds an element of excitement to the game. Because the risk there doesn't make you not want to play it because if you drop a thief and you succeed it is thrilling yes especially when you drop a thief and two people exhibit which i've experienced before it's awesome you're like i'm gonna take your best card and i'm gonna take your best card and you know what's cool about that as opposed to a game like phrase folly where you get pissed off about it yes when somebody does it in a game like this you're like well well played you know what i mean you respect it right because it was a well-timed use of the card other than just a random take that annoyance and because you know know that they put quite a lot at risk because there's not a terribly large number of turns in this game so if you're putting your actual whole turn at risk to do something it's kind of a big deal i think each of us probably at least one time had at least one turn where you were like dang it like didn't get anything out of this you had a game like that where you're like i haven't succeeded at anything this yeah, game. we made it like halfway through the game and i hadn't <laughs> successfully like accomplished anything on a turn it was right. like bouncing off of other people the whole time this was still sitting in start <laughs> yep 
What do you guys think of the detective? We were talking about catch-up mechanisms and stuff in, in a few recent episodes. Yeah. And I feel like the detective functions that way. What do you guys think of that? Yeah, I liked it. For the reason we've already mentioned, because it's so telegraphed. It takes guts to do it, right? You can use it in obvious situations, but people might be onto the fact that you're trying to do that, but you still might be able to outthink them if you think people are still desperate enough to play the thief. Right. Versus you can use it when you're kind of in the middle. Maybe I'm in third. And this game, moving forward three spaces, is not bad. Yeah. And so somebody may be like, ah, he won't play it. And then you play it, right? It's well done in this case. Yeah, I agree. There's a risk-reward factor to it. It's not just you get free points because you're in last. Yes. Um, So I enjoyed that. One thing we had talked about when we started this discussion was what does this game remind you of? And another correlation I saw there was a little bit of poker, right? Hmm. I think on a first player two, you can see this game as being random. But I really do believe, saying fully that I felt like I sucked at this, but I do feel like there are tells in this game. Mm. Not only are you looking at what the board is telling you, but if you really look up from your tableau and you start looking at your opponents, what are they doing? What part of the board are they looking at? What cards are they looking at? Are they looking at their antiques? You know, I think there are just these little subtle tells that if you're good enough, you could pick up on. Every time I play poker, I suck at poker. I like playing it, but I suck at it. And every time I play poker, I'm like, man, poker's just a bunch of luck. But in my heart and in my brain, I know that's not true, right? Because there are people that are really good at it. But they're good at it because they know the math, but they're also good at picking up on people's tells, Right. right? And I think this game has that. I think if you enjoyed poker, you would like a game like this. Okay. Yeah. If that makes sense. Yeah. One of the cons that I picked up on in this game i think is everyone is dealt a starting hand of four antique mm-hmm. cards mm-hmm. right and the first time we played this game i won but i started the game with four cards that made a run mm. yeah and this the second problem. time we played the game i started with four cards that very much did not make a run <laughs> and so i spent the very first part of the game fighting to get cards from the auction house to even get to the point where i could do an exhibit and be able to compete and by that point, other players in the game had eight or nine cards in their hand that formed these huge runs that I knew I was never going to be able to compete with yeah. until the very end of the game. And I think that that can be a bit of a swingy thing in terms of just how the game is set up from the beginning. If you don't get a great starting hand, you might be hampered from being able to get out of the gate fast enough. And Chris, you alluded to this in the Heimlich & Co. review. If you're not close to the end of the track by the end game, you have no chance yep, in that game. Yep. And this game is very similar. If you're not close to the end, there's no chance for you. Yep. Even that final exhibit scoring with like eight moves forward and four moves forward mm-hmm. or whatever, it's not going to do it for you unless you're close. It worried me about this game. Yeah, yeah I had the same concern. That was my other con. So I won the, the other uh, play, and I felt great about it because I felt like I did make a lot of good calls in the game. You did make good calls in the game. You, but, you were in the lead for a reason. Sure. However, I mean, my first couple moves consi- did consist in exhibiting because I had like five cards. One of my first early turns was to acquire another card, and then I kept exhibiting and exhibiting because I didn't have to do that much work on my hand. And I was like, ah, I feel like I had kind of an advantage, despite the fact that I did, I think, play the game well the rest of the game. I think Jason's point's pretty valid. Ready to move on to final thoughts? Yeah. Kick us off, Chris. All right. This was a tough one for me, mostly because I can see the merits of this game. I can see why this game won game of the year. I think this game has good mechanisms. It's clever. 
I think it has a lot of redeeming qualities about it. The rock, paper, scissors is fun. There's a lot of fun double think, tells, like I've already mentioned. It's got cool things going on. But part of reviewing isn't just necessarily looking at the game mechanisms. It's how did I feel about it as a player. Mm -hmm. And for me personally, and I want to make that clear, for me personally, it was just a meh. It was a three for me. Mostly because I just suck at this. <laughs> <laughs> I am just not good at it. In Heimlich & Co., the deduction is different because you're making the deduction off of players' actions on the board. I can see it. I can make assessments. I just don't do the I know that you know that I know that you know thought process well. And picking up on tells and things, like I was trying to, but it's just hard for me. I'm convinced that people could be very good at it in that way. But for me, I wasn't. And I found I was just becoming frustrated by that. Now, having said all that, I give it a three. I think if you know somebody that likes poker or likes bluffing or games with tells or things like that, this would be a good game to introduce to them. Hmm. Especially if they're not into the hobby, this might get them into it. Right. I could see it being useful in that way. But for me... It's just a three. I'm just going to get rid of this one, I think. I, I just didn't enjoy it personally. Jason? Yeah, for me, I think I had the opposite opinion of this game versus Heimlich & Co., which is interesting. Yeah, right? it is. I feel like you really, it, Heimlich & Co. really clicked for you, and you understood how to deduce the actions that were going on in this chaotic ring of mess that was that game. <laughs> <laughs> it just didn't click for me in that. But in Hoity Toity, for some reason, and I don't claim to be good at it by any means. I'm not good at poker. I wasn't great at this, despite the fact that I won once. But for some reason, even if I'm not good at it, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed that guessing game of, okay, well, I know that he has a lot of cards, so he's probably going to try to exhibit, but maybe he's going to like fake me out and try to thief instead. Mm -hmm. I enjoyed that aspect of it. It felt tense the whole way through as we were playing. Like Every decision yeah. that you make, that first decision of even where am I going to go, and then the second decision of, okay, well, now what am I going to do that now that I'm here? All of those decisions felt really tense to me, and I enjoyed that aspect of it. I do have concerns about some of the balance issues, and it, it did feel like sometimes I was questioning whether the person in the lead was in the lead because they were really reading the table really well, or if they were in the lead because they just made lucky guesses a couple times and just happened to choose the one location that nobody else chose. Um, it's calling you out, Cameron. No, I mean, I, <laughs> I guess I am to a degree, but I, but I won as well, right? So I'm, oh, okay. I'm calling well, myself out too, right? Because I'm not admitting to having had the game entirely figured out when I won, right? Because of those concerns, I rated it a four. I did enjoy it. I think it's a good game. I, I would enjoy playing this game some more to really solidify that opinion, but I enjoyed my plays of it. And I think that most of the folks that we played it with were intrigued by it and enjoyed mm -hmm. it as well. For those reasons, I gave it a four. Mm-hmm. Cool. Well, I really love this game. <laughs> I had a great time playing it. And it's been a while since I've come across a game that I felt like I would want to get a copy of for my own family. I think I could get my family or my close friend group, at least, to play this game and that they'd get a kick out of it. I think it has that slight like social deduction, ink and gold aspect that I really enjoy. You guys know how much I love ink and gold. Oh, yeah. That feeling of push your luck, you know, big consequences when you're wrong and satisfying rewards when you're right. So... For hoity-toity, I'm going to oh, go man. with... No. Wait for it. No way. 
a six. What? Whoa. I'm giving out my six to Hoity Toity. Hoity Toity. I had a great time playing this game. I felt Did you just like feel that, pressured because we, we no, pointed no, it out crap. last that, time? The like, tension in the game of like, what am I going to do? And like having to make that second rank decision and maybe pivoting what I was thinking I was going to do. I just really enjoyed having to think through like, oh, what do they think I'm going to do this time? Especially that game when I was in the lead a lot. I, I was just like having a blast. Like thinking through like what do they think that i'm going to do and how do i do it and i did it a couple times so yeah. it wasn't just lucky guessing jason <laughs> <laughs> but yeah I had, I had a blast playing this game and i hope that maybe my friend group will i'm, I'm intending on getting a copy of this so maybe there's one I, that's recently on the market I, oh yeah yeah you're gonna be the the proud new owner of a game a copy of hoity-toity because i'll be releasing mine and having said that if at game night a lot of people are like hey let's play i would play it sure you know, I didn't again, get the I didn't sense love that anybody it. that was playing it like was having a bad time. Uh, versus, I think a like, couple I'm of people didn't love it, except for like, Bill. <laughs> I think if you just can't stand uncertainty and you uh, feel like okay. you have to know everything, it's, yeah. this game will drive you crazy. Yeah. Um, but well, I mean, it was not the experience of like a Heimlich and Co. where like Jason and I were like swearing the entire time. <laughs> <laughs> I was having a great time. This is so arbitrary. It's, it's not arbitrary, <laughs> but I think you make a good point. I, I think this game could be really good for quote unquote non-gamers like family members it's easy to play you yeah. know i think people get the ideas of rock paper scissors it comes across sure. you get and to I, say, and I say the whole time. <laughs> yeah, it's like, well i had a blast with this one <laughs> so for fans who may be also wanting to test my feelings about it and give hoity-toity a try where can you find it do you know no oh my gosh i never know <laughs> okay yeah so yeah again this game is in stock at Noble Knight, so you can get this at an online retailer. And there's 63 copies on BGG. This is readily available. Some dirt cheap. You Not know, all are in English, which we should probably. Sure. Know. Yeah, yeah. You were actually looking at some of them. I was. Yeah. I, this is. I was like, I actually could answer this question. Cameron was like, Hey, are you gonna sell your copy of Forty Two? I was like, I can't tell you that before you review it. Yeah. Chris also has a copy, but He's it like, might it might be spoken buy, for. Just don't buy it yet. Yeah, that's like, what he told me. Yeah, he made me. I gave you an idea. Cool. All right. Well, those are our thoughts on Hoity Toity on Hoity Toity. <laughs> <laughs> In the wild rapids of the Niagara River, fearless canoers battle the water and each other to collect gems along the riverbank. Of course, the most valuable gems are found further downriver, close to the waterfall. Yep, there's a waterfall, and careless canoers that don't keep an eye on the currents can fall over. Also, players must return collected gems to land in order to be counted. At the end, the player who collects the most valuable gems is the winner. <laughs> Welcome to Niagara. <laughs> All right. Niagara. Your facial expressions while doing that were priceless. <laughs> oh, man. Whoo. <laughs> Got to get it together here. <laughs> Niagara, published in 2004 by Zoc and Rio Grande Games. At the time of this recording, it's BGG ranking. This, oh, dude, I'm Chris is literally right now. in tears. Oh, dude, that was great. <laughs> At the time of this recording, the BGG ranking is 1,462. Is that the highest? It's really close to 
hoity-toity. It is. It's 1,564. Like within 100 of hoity-toity. Okay. Designer, Thomas Leeshing. I've never heard of this guy, and that's because he has no other notable designs that I was able to come up with. He's got another one that's like in the 10,000. It's kind of a one-hit wonder from this guy. As it turns out, I believe, if I'm remembering right, this has been many years ago, I acquired this in the same flea market sale as Heimlich & Co. If it wasn't the same one, it was another flea market convention. So, in the underappreciated category? Exactly. Games that people were trying to sell. Right. Yeah, yeah. I I definitely picked this up in a flea market. I remember that. All right. Brief rule summary of Niagara. (laughs) In Niagara... Basically, what you're doing is you are taking two canoes downstream, precariously close to a waterfall, in an attempt to collect gems off the bank and then get those gems back without falling over the edge of the waterfall and losing everything you've acquired. Okay? Similar to Heimlich & Co., I think it's useful to describe the setup and what this game actually looks like on the table before I explain how it's played. So in Niagara, what you do is you take the box lid and the box base and you set them on the table and then you lay the board on top of the two boxes, creating a river and then a waterfall at one end. Running down the center of this board, you have a groove, an indentation, which represents the river. And within this, you are going to be setting clear plastic discs that are like three to four inches in diameter. From end to end, it's seven or eight plastic discs long. Okay, this represents the river. It's also important to note that at the end of the river, near the waterfall, the river splits in two different directions, to the right and to the left, and there are two plastic discs within each branch of the river. Okay? So the way that you play Niagara, like I mentioned, you have two canoes that you control. And what you're going to do is you're going to be placing these in the water to collect gems. The way that you win this game is you can either have four gems of the same color, five gems each of a unique color, or seven gems total, regardless of what color they are. Along the bank are deposits of gems all of the same color. Okay, So there are five different areas along the bank where you can get gems and they're all the same color. On your turn, what you're going to do is you're going to take a hand of cards i guess they're not really cards they're like little tiny cardboard chits can't call those cards they're not cards (laughs) they're small and there are seven of them they're numbered one through six and then there's a seventh chit that has a cloud on it so what you're going to be doing is you're going to look at that hand and you're going to choose one of those to play everybody's going to do that simultaneously they're going to put it face down on the board and then starting with the start player you'll flip yours over and reveal if you play a number that is going to be your movement for the round So let's say, for example, I play a four. What that enables me to do is to take a canoe off the bank and move it in the river, each one of those plastic discs representing a space of movement. Or I can take a canoe that's already in the water and I can move it upstream or downstream. But it's important to note what I can't do is I can't split the movement. Okay, So if I play a four, it's not that I move one canoe two and the other canoe two. I move them both four, and they all have to move in one direction only. So I move upstream four, or I move downstream four. I can't go up one and down three, for example. Now, it's important to note that part of that movement is also to procure the gems on the bank. So in order to take a gem off the bank, it costs two points of movement. So for example, I can move downstream two spaces and then spend my remaining two points of movement to take a gem off the bank and put it into my canoe. Each canoe can hold one gem at most. 
Once I've collected that gem, my goal is to cross back across the finish line where then I can take the gem and add it to my holdings. One more thing that's important to note is that if you're moving your canoe upstream and your canoe is empty and you land on a plastic space that has other canoes in it that are loaded with gems, you can steal a gem from an opponent and put it into your canoe. So I also mentioned there's one other type of chit that has a cloud on it. This controls the weather or how briskly the river is going to move for that particular round. So you can move it towards a minus one, you can set it back to zero, or it can go up to plus one and even up to plus two. The way this works is at the end of the round, whoever played the lowest movement chit, so let's say the lowest card played was a three. The river will move a number of discs equal to that number plus or minus whatever the weather gauge is set on the lowest chip plate is a three and the weather gauge is plus two, you are going to load five plastic discs into the river and push them towards the waterfall and all of the canoes that are sitting on discs will move down river towards the waterfall. Okay? But it's not a quarry. But it's not Disclaimer. a quarry. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny you should bring that up, actually. But that's coming. If your canoe falls over the edge... You lose the gem it was holding, if any, and you lose that canoe, and the only way to get it back is to pay a gem. Cameron knows what this is like. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and that's basically the game. So like I said, you're trying to maneuver your canoes to get the gems you want, get them back to the land without falling over the edge of the waterfall to achieve one of those three objectives. Whoever does that first wins the game. That's generally how you play Niagara. So elephant in the room here we obviously have to talk about this first right whenever there's a gimmick like in via appia with the quarry it's what you have to talk about first right and this game make no mistake about it it has a gimmick this tangible way that you load these plastic discs into the river and push them forward moving the canoes downstream towards the waterfall is different as a gimmick and as a mechanism in the game how do you feel like it did did it add anything to the game? Was it a good gimmick or was it not? I mean, it's the core of the game for sure. You can't play this game and not account for it. And if you're not planning, at least to the best of your ability, because we have the weather token, which can throw some variability into that. If you don't account for it, you'll, you'll end up like me and lose a boat. <laughs> right. Yeah, I thought that from a thematic perspective and from just a practical perspective of every round, you're going to have to move these boats down the water. I think it works as a mechanic or as a thematic element, right? I don't mind gimmicks as long as they serve a real purpose. I think this one does, right? It moves the boats down the water without you having to pick up every single boat that's on the board and move it one space. It has that nice little effect of they fall off the end of the board, you know, mm -hmm. into the water. In terms of the river movement gameplay value, right? this is where I have issue. Because I think that this game, it's a puzzle, right? You have these six movement cards and a weather card. You have to figure out when to use them. I don't remember if you mentioned this, but you don't get any of your cards back until you've used all of them. Right? Yeah, that's a good point to make. I didn't, yeah. But you have to use all your movement and your cloud before you get your whole deck back. Right, so once you've played your six, you don't get it back until all of your other cards are gone. Right. And that's important because I think that ultimately makes this game a puzzle. And I think it's a solvable one in a weird way, to a degree. I caveat that a little bit because I know what my movement values are. And this is where I think the river is a problem. I also know exactly where the river is going because when you push discs into the river, it alternates every single time. There okay. might be the rare, super rare occasion where that doesn't happen. 
but it's going to be a disc falls off the left side of the river, a disc falls off the right side of the river. I never saw a disc it falls off the left side of the river, a disc falls off the right side of the river. So if you know that, you can look at the board and look at the way the discs are arranged, and you know which one's going off next. And you can figure out exactly where your boat is going to be after the movement of the river. And the problem with that, though, is that despite all of your best planning, you're restricted to having those six movement values. I have to play a one at some point. I have to play a two at some point. And I think that's part of the game, right? That's part of what makes the game interesting is I have to figure out, okay, well, when do I play my six? Do I need to hold back my six so that if I get too close to the waterfall, I still have some movement value I can get away from it? But I found myself in a lot of situations where I just didn't have the cards that I need, and I don't think it was because of poor planning. Mm. And that frustrated me about this game, where you just end up sitting at the end of the river treading water, basically, because you're moving forward and getting sent back, moving forward and getting sent back, because it's all you have. You only have these low-valued cards, and the water's moving fast. I struggled with that restrictiveness of those tiles. Yeah. You mentioned that it's a solvable puzzle, and I want to come back to that because I think it's an interesting statement to make about this game because I didn't feel that way at all. But I do want to say one thing about the river, echoing what you said and one additional thing. So when you look at this game on the table, it looks cool. This game has great table presence. Mm -hmm. I was excited to play this game. It looks really neat. It disappointed me so badly, this river, for one of the reasons Jason said, the alternating nature of the river. When you first look at it, you're like, oh, this is cool because it looks like there's an element of randomness. Like two or three might go down the right and then one might go down the left. There's a little bit of push your luck there, right? No, it always alternates. And in the rare cases that it doesn't alternate, I've seen this happen twice in games that i played, it gets caught on the break point and it actually like popped up off the board because it got stuck there. Mm. And the rules address this and it says if that happens, you just push it the opposite way of the way the disc went last time. Okay, so <laughs> yeah. So basically this adds nothing to the gameplay, right? Like you said, it's just calculatable. It's always going to behave in a predictable fashion. That is boring, right? Mm. If you're going to have a gimmick, I think it either has to have a randomization element, like a cube tower. A cube tower is a gimmick, mm. but it's a randomizer, mm. right? It does something unexpected mm. and unique, right? Or if it doesn't randomize, it should have some sort of skill element to it. <laughs> This is where we might have some disagreement, but in Via Appia, one of the things I liked about the quarry oh, no. is that while it did have some randomness to it, I felt like I had some control over it. Am I going to load a small stone? Am I going to put a medium stone in here? Am I going to put a large stone? What side of the quarry am I going to put it on? Is it How, even the right time to use it? Is it the right time to use it? How am I going to push the stone in? Right? Like right. There are things to it that are interesting. All this does is right, left, right, left, right, left. Lame. <laughs> Sucks. I was so disappointed with how that played out, other than it just looked cool. Right. I was actually like shocked, because I think it was like two-thirds of the way through my second play of the game before I realized, oh no, it is like that every single time. Yeah, didn't like that. So I want to go back to the comment you made about solvable puzzle. And I get what you're saying about how, because the river behaves in a predictable way, that, in a sense, is solvable. <clears throat> But how else in the rest of the gameplay did you feel like it was predictable in that way? I think so. I mean, maybe I need to backtrack on that statement a little bit. It's not perfectly solvable. I want to be clear on that. (laughs) So maybe, I mean, I guess that means it's not solvable. But but you're saying you can anticipate how your dude is going to move once the river is accounted for. Right, and I think you can... account for the river, though. 
What do you mean? You can account for it going right or left, but you have no idea how much it's going to move and around. You do, Only though, to a degree. No, you don't. I, I think... Because it's based on the lowest chit that a person plays in the round, and there's no way of knowing oh, what that's right. going to be. Right, but what I found more often than not was that the moments when it mattered the most, where the river was going to go, was when I was left with low-numbered cards. And if I'm playing a low-numbered card, then I'm probably controlling how right. far the river's going to move. Right. Right. If sure, I'm if I'm playing a one or a two, then it's probably moving one or a two. Okay. Right? Because I'm playing the low-numbered card, and so in that scenario. I'm controlling how far the river is going to move. and Only the, if you're playing a one or a two, though. Right, but if I'm playing a high number, if I'm playing a five or a six, then it doesn't necessarily matter that much how far the river moves because I'm moving so far up the river. In terms of you being in danger. Right. Yeah. That you're well out of danger at that point. Sure, but you're treading water, like you said. Sure, like but that's if unavoidable. If the lowest number is played as a four and it's plus one on the water track, you're moving up six, but you're moving back five again, right? Right, but that's unavoidable, right? Like, that's just a necessity at that point. I have to play my six to be able to move out of danger, and it's just the nature of the game that I'm going to move back however far I'm going to move back, right? Well, the other thing like, you, that the, we have There is no alternative of, like, well, I should just play a one instead, right? Because then I'm for sure going to go off the... Okay, off well, the edge, okay, right? so I'll concede the fact that it's hard to make somebody intentionally fall off the waterfall, yeah. which was disappointing. <laughs> I was wanting that. But from I, like a placing your number tile token or for like when you choose to change the weather token? Both. Okay. I was like, oh, I'm going to play a cloud here. And then somebody plays a one at a weird time. Right. I'm like, dang it. You know, like yeah. I just couldn't make it do what I wanted. I'm just going to say I found this game to be chaotic and, and a mess. Hmm. You can't anticipate it. Hmm. There's this idea of like floating or going down the river. And trying to pick up gems, but you never know where you're going to end up. Yeah, you know what I mean. You can't account for that. You can't account for somebody stealing from you. Right. You can try to move forward and be like, "Well, I hope somebody doesn't land on me," but there's no way to know, right? It, it reminded me a lot of a game like Walk the Plank or Cold Express. Everybody's playing a card down your program, and you're just hoping it works out. Right. You know. Ugh. While we're on the subject of just dumping on this game, <laughs> the consequences of falling off in this game are way too severe. You're out of the game. Like, you're done. If yep. you do, because the thing is, it at least costs you one gem, because you're not going to win this game if you only have one boat, right? We can just say that straight out. At the very least, it's going to cost you one, because maybe your empty canoe fell off. But if your gem canoe fell off, you've already invested a ton just to get the freaking gem in that boat. Mm-hmm. And so if that one falls you're off, really which happened two. to me, yeah. you're really losing two, yeah. and you're just toast at that point. And that happened to me in the last game, and I was like, all right, well, I'm just going to put whatever out because I'm done. I'm not going to be anywhere close to winning this game. Yeah. And, I, and I wasn't. I had three gems, I think, at the end of the game. Yeah. I think the winner had seven. Yeah, I agree. It's, it's problematic. Anybody have anything good to say about this game? I mean, I do. This is just actually, what I was about to say. Yeah. I do have a, a nice thing to say about this game. Okay, go ahead. Thematically, I think this game is really well done. So you're placing these numbers out, right? Which, if you're thinking in the mind of canoes, like you don't have an infinite amount of really pushing hard energy. Mm-hmm. So sometimes you're going to be able to paddle stronger, and sometimes you're going to be able to paddle weaker. And sometimes sure. you use your powers to control the weather. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> But I think visually the game is very striking on the table. I like how the little cardboard edges flow over the side of the board. It's a fun element. There's some nice things to say about the visual elements of it. I'd say for me the only pro that I had to this game is I like the win conditions. Mm. I like the fact that you can win in three different ways. Mm. You can get four of the same, five unique, or seven total. Right. 
that's interesting. However, the unique one is just hard. Really hard. You have to yeah. find yourself all the way at the edge right near the waterfall to get that pink gem. And there's no way you can plan to do that. Yeah. Because of the randomness of the card play. If you get one of those pink gems, it's because you just so happened to get pushed there by the river. And you did not plan on that. <laughs> yeah. I'm telling you, you did not plan for that to happen. Yeah. You lucked into that. right? So or again, you stole it from somebody. <laughs> or you stole it from somebody. Right. So again, for me, I like the ideas there of the multiple win conditions, but... There's just too much chaoticness to the game to make it interesting. Stealing is the worst in this game too. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Like you I mean, lost because of that. Yeah, I had the game won. All that needed to happen was I needed to get my boats off the board. Bill, because of, <laughs> of course, course, because of course, it's Bill. always Bill. <laughs> Bill stole the one gem that I needed. You see, and it's like there's no chance I'm getting another one of those. Nope. Right, it's never gonna happen. And I lost the game because. And of no it. offense to Bill, and I, I'm not saying this to be mean to Bill. I'm being serious. He did not plan to do that. He had no way of knowing right. you were going to be there. You just happened to be there. Right. And he happened to play the right number to land on you. Again, that's the problem I have with this game. There's no skill in that. It's just all random. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? It's random. All right. All right, let's final thoughts this thing, Jason. <laughs> let's go. Let's do it. All right. The restrictiveness of the tiles killed this game for me. It just felt like no matter how much I tried to plan ahead to use my tiles wisely, it didn't matter. I always ended up stuck in a situation where I'm treading water now, and I'm going to have to for three rounds because I don't have the tiles that I need, and it's just the way things happened. And the river being solvable from the angle of, (laughs) to be clear at this point now, (laughs) from the angle of I know where I'm going to end up based on how the river is flowing at the current moment, it just ultimately ended up being unsatisfying. And I even, I won this game once and it still felt like well i managed to have my tiles in the correct order Mm -hmm. right so this was a meh 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 for me between a two and a three on this i settled on a three but it was a tough decision between two and three for me Mm -hmm. all right so it's funny how this works out sometimes i finally got my six on the books for the week but unfortunately it's being bookended by games that i liked much less Niagara just really didn't do anything for me. I often felt frustrated and stressed more than I was really enjoying playing. And I struggled with this as well, Jason. This might be a bad game. I struggled to see how this won this award. Mm-hmm. I feel like I'm, maybe I'm missing something, but we review a lot of games. I play a lot of games, so I don't think I'm that off base. I wouldn't really seek out to play this game. I would probably pull for something else if someone was wanting to play it. I'm going to go with a two for Niagara. Mm. I don't think it's a good game. Okay. This game sucks. <laughs> <laughs> Chris doesn't mince in words. This is one of the worst games I've ever played. I hated this game. Well, And I think the reason why is it was so disappointing. Mm. Like with Smiley Face. Yeah, you kind of know what you're getting. I, I wasn't expecting yeah. anything great from that. It sucked, but I was like, okay, well, that's kind of what I was expecting. Right. When I put this on the table, I was like, this looks cool. I was really pumped for the plastic disc, the river. I was like, oh, man, it's exciting. So deflating. For all the reasons I've already said, I won't rehash them, but the gimmick, other than just looking cool, is utterly and totally unexciting mm. and just disappointing and boring. When you add that to uninspired and chaotic random gameplay... No, 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 no. This is a two for me. Easy. I don't think it's broken. Yeah. It plays. Yeah. I'm just not looking for this kind of experience when I play a game. I need something more than this. It's playable. 
It just does absolutely nothing for me. Right. And so for that reason, it's a two. Just do not like this game at all. Well, on that high note, <laughs> Chris, tell us where we can find it if I anyone is still interested. One, you know, I'm so generous with my grade. Chris's game room. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> right. All right. Shockingly, again, this game is on Noble Knight. They just specialize in these kind of games, but you can get this on Noble Knight if you want. Online retailer, forty listings on BGG and nine on eBay. So easily acquirable. Cool. If you want. (laughs) (laughs) We are always really curious, though, if we just dump on a game like this and you find yourself giving it a try and actually like it, definitely reach out to us on BGG about that. We would be really curious if someone has a different take on something like this. Yeah, please You may not convince us. Chime in on the guild. But yeah, yeah, join the guild and leave your thoughts if you check out a game that we go two, 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 three, whatever. I respect everybody's opinion. And like I said, when I give these grades, that's for me. If somebody likes Monopoly or Smiley Face or Niagara, great. I'm glad you enjoy it. You know, I just didn't like it. I think Bill liked it also. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Before well, he listens to this review. <laughs> <laughs> well, of course, we want to thank everyone for joining us on this Spiel de Jars episode of Hidden Gems. Of course, if you like what we're doing, We'd love for you to give us a rating or review on your podcast platform of choice. Follow us on our various social media platforms. We're particularly active on Instagram. Check out our BGG Guild if you want to interact with us or share a game that you think is a hidden gem. And until next time, I'm your host, Cameron. This is Chris. And I'm Jason. Thanks for listening. This Independence Day episode of Hidden Gems, number 11, was recorded in Raleigh, North Carolina on July 4, 2021. Join us again in two weeks when Chris and Cameron will be featuring a fresh batch of two-player Hidden Gems while Jason is away enjoying Maine. Hidden Gems is produced and edited by Chris Alley, Cameron Lockie, and Jason Yonchla. Our Board Game Geek Guild is monitored and managed by honorary Hidden Gems team member Ghidorah. Our show's logo was illustrated by designer and artist Caitlin Nieto. Check out her work on Instagram at It's Caitlin Nieto. We would love to hear from you. Feel free to join the discussion on our many social media accounts. You can find us on Facebook at Hidden Gems Board Game Podcast, Instagram at hiddengems.podcast, and Twitter at Hidden Gems Board. Disagree with one of our reviews? Have something you want to say about one of the games we discussed today? You can also make your voice heard on our Board Game Geek Guild at boardgamegeek.com, guild number 3874. Once again, thank you for joining us on Hidden Gems. And until next time, fellow gem seekers, enjoy your games and enjoy your search. Spiel is a word, right? Spiel. Yeah. The sp- the sp- it's spiel? It's spelled the same as the German word. Yeah. Spiel it's not pronou- about it's not the spiel. Spiel about the spiel. Or the spiel no, on spiel, the spiel. Spiel about this. Spiel on the spiel. Uh, right? Uh, we have to look it up now. <laughs> <laughs>